Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. It is so much science on the radio once again. Um, my name is Chris and boy howdy. Do we have some Australian species, uh, th- Australian threatened species and the threats there too? Uh, Stu, what are you talking about? Well, I, I'm, a, I'm a big plant guy and one of the things you that You are a big plant guy. <laughs> yeah, I'm a, gi- I'm a giant green thing in the middle. No, I don't live in a pot. You're um, certainly not a fun guy, are you? <laughs> I used to be a fun guy. You used to be a fun guy. One of the things that people who aren't even particularly interested in plants find interesting is carnivorous plants. And I'm going to be talking Mm. to Adam Cross about a plant from Western Australia, which is a very rare and unusual kind of indigenous carnivorous plant, which is endangered at the moment in Albany in Western Australia. But it's a really cool looking uh, carnivorous plant that needs people's help. To, mm. to, uh, to get by. Can I just ask one question yeah. about carnivorous plants? Like, are they then predator primary producers? Like, what, what would you call where, them? Where do they go on the yeah, food chain? where do they go on the food chain? How, how do they fit into the ecological web of life? Well, it's a good question. Maybe Adam can answer that later in the show. Fantastic. Well, I'm talking about some predators as well. Recently, I went to Kangaroo Island and I did see some kangaroos there, but they weren't um, the animals that really um, struck me as being as incredible. The- also, they're only predators if you're a grass. Yeah. Really. <laughs> That's right. Not very predatory, mostly. Um, Australian sea lions w- are there and um, they take up a place called mm, Seal Bay. Which is so? Are they seals a, or are they sea lions? Well, that's what I'm going to talk about today: the mm. difference between a seal and a sea lion, what it all means, and what some of the um, threats to our Australian sea lions are. So you could say that you saw some kangaroos, but the sea lions were the main event. They don't have manes. I don't get it. <laughs> lions, lions have manes. Mm. Thank you, Claire. Well, and me, I am going to be covering the whole lot and looking across the board at Australia's threatened species and what are the threats is mostly invasive species. And we're going to count down the top 10 invasive species that are threatening Australia's threatened species. Will your favourite make the cut? (laughs) Stay tuned and find out. On with the show. A lot of people who have an interest in plants have probably come across the carnivorous plant species of the world, and probably the most famous of those is the Venus flytrap, which catches its uh, prey in its snapping jaws. There's a much bigger group of carnivorous plants, which are sort of a bit more passive, I suppose. They're called pitcher plants, and they wait to some degree for insects to fall into a pitcher or sort of jug-shaped Uh, appendage that the plants have Uh, and there are some of these that are native to Australia. Um, I have on the line with me Dr Adam Cross from Curtin University in Western Australia to tell us about one of those native indigenous 
pitcher plants, which can be found in WA. Thanks for joining us on Lost in Science, Adam Cross. No problem. Thanks very much. So, as I said in the intro, pitcher plants are found all around the world uh, in various places. Um, are there many in Australia? Uh, we've got four species of pitcher plants in Australia. Um, it's not a fantastic claim to fame of the sort of 150 to 200 species around the world, um, but we've got perhaps the most unique species on the planet down here in the southwest of Western Australia, the Albany pitcher plant. Okay, so the other ones are, the other Australian species are from far north of Queensland. Albany is obviously a temperate climate, so is, is that what makes them so special? Uh, essentially, yes. The species from North Queensland are from a group that we call the tropical pitcher plants, or the genus Nepenthes, and they're a quite widely distributed group throughout the tropical regions, uh, Borneo, the Philippines, Indonesia, areas like that. Um, the Albany pitcher plant is from a genus known as Cephalotus, or Cephalotus, and it is quite remarkable in its uniqueness. Um, it is actually, even though it looks quite similar to these other species on the face of its morphology, you know, the pitchers have a, a similar shape to them. It's actually more related in an evolutionary context to cabbages, roses and pumpkins than it is to other carnivorous plants or, in fact, even other pitcher plants. So the appearance of the plant, could, well, briefly, can you describe what the plants look like? So Cephalotus grows as almost like a small rosetted uh, herb. It's, it's only a few centimetres high. It's not the most sort of prepossessing of plants. Um, but it has these very striking jug-shaped pitches that can be up to sort of four or five centimetres long, almost like a, a large thumb. And they sit at about a 45-degree angle to the ground. Um, and the limb or the rip uh, of those pitches is sort of lined with teeth so it has almost a, a little sort of a menacing mouth at the top of the pitcher. Um, and those attract insects, up the sort of rigid wings that surround the pitcher, um, which are drawn by nectar. Um, and they are sort of lured into the mouth of the pitcher where they fall in and are slowly digested and assimilated by the plant. But why, why have they adapted this, this uh, ability to digest insects? Well, Western Australia generally um, is known because we have very, very infertile soils, soils that have very low amounts of uh, plant-available nutrients in them. And Cephalotus grows down south in wet, peaty swamps that have virtually no uh, nutrients that plants need to survive. So they've found this strategy or this niche that allows them to compete with other plants where other plants really have to struggle or find other strategies to find nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus, um, they really just sort of sit there passively and, um, and they get theirs from capturing and digesting insects. So this, this uh, structure that they've developed, this picture, this is obviously, if these are so distantly related to the, uh, to the other picture plants in, in the world, this is a great example of convergent evolution at work here? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's probably the most striking instance of convergent evolution anywhere in the plant kingdom. Um, Cephalotus, the current estimates suggest, is about 55 million years old as a genus. And there is only the one species within that genus, 
and the genus sits alone within the family Cephalotaceae. So there are no other near relatives of this species. And in fact, its nearest relative is a rainforest tree from South America. So this, this plant is far, far removed from all of its uh, relatives in the world, really. Absolutely. And uh, in time. The current, yeah, the current estimates really sort of suggest that it's a, a Gondwanan-era relic, and it has just, or its relatives, have just sat in swamps down in the southwest region near Albany for tens of millions of years, sort of just doing the one thing that they do best, which is being carnivorous. So it's only found in this area of uh, southwest Western Australia. How large is the extent of the, of the population? Uh, historically, it was quite extensive. So historically, there are records of this species that occur almost as north as Bustleton, down to Augusta, and across to sort of east of Albany. So a, a several hundred kilometre east-west range, um, and almost about a 100 kilometre north-south range. But that is one of the main focus of our research in the last sort of four or five years, uh, because the range of the species has dramatically declined. So what's its current range at the moment? Uh, currently, the estimates um, that have been done through Independent Survey and also from our, our state government department, the Department of Biodiversity, Conservation and Attractions, estimate that there is between 2,000 and 3,000 hectares only of suitable habitat left for this species. And so has anyone got an estimate of how many actual plants might be in that area? Uh, yes, we've done surveys um, now, as I say, over the last few years, and we think that there are approximately 5,000 plants left in the wild. That's not a great number to have left. What, uh, what are their major threats and how can they be protected uh, the population that's actually left? Well, there used to be approximately 130 locations that are recorded in our state herbaria. Um, our surveys have found that over 75% of those have been lost in the last century. Mostly they've been lost to land clearing for agricultural development uh, and for the development of housing, particularly around the Albany region. Um, but the species has a very, very strict ecological requirement. So it only grows in a particular kind of habitat, even within those swamps, where it's just wet enough but not too wet. Um, and as such, it's also threatened by alterations to hydrology, the flow of water through habitat. Um, and it can also be threatened by um, fires that are burning at the wrong kind, uh, the wrong time of year, sorry, um, or also fires that are too hot that actually damaged the peat, as we've seen through some of the very intensive bushfires down in the southern region in the last couple of years. Um, there is also one rather more dubious threat um, that the species has increasingly begun facing, and that is from poaching, the illegal collection of plants, because this species has such a high horticultural value. So would that, would that suggest that people should only buy through reputable uh, suppliers of their carnivorous plants? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I mean, it, it's a, a quite a challenging species to grow in the first place, uh, and a lot of people sort of struggle to keep this species alive for long periods because it's so picky in its requirements. Um, and so a lot of people, you know, if they were to go and uh, collect this illegally, which, which it really is, you know, any poaching of our native flora is illegal, 
the likelihood of those plants even surviving for the couple of days after they've been collected is extraordinarily low. So the, the poaching itself can just kill individual plants and then obviously that reduces the, the, uh, the available plants to reproduce in the wild as well. Yes, uh, the species is very long-lived as well. In, single individuals live for decades at a time and it can take four or five years for a seedling to reach maturity. Um, and we've seen evidence that entire populations have become extinct because of poaching. Okay, and are there any programs in place to help preserve the, the habitat of the Albany pitcher plant? That's one of the major focuses of our research, and, and that's the sort of main call that we're making as part of our conservation work. Um, this species actually has no formal protection currently at either state or federal level. Uh, it's not listed even as a species of priority conservation interest in Western Australia. Um, and this is despite the fact that the International Union for the Conservation of Nature has listed it as vulnerable now for nearly 20 years. That said, um, it does occur in some very unique habitat down south, and that habitat is afforded state and federal protection. So there is a degree of conservation. Okay, well, I guess one of the things uh, anyone listening could do is possibly write to their local member, whether in Western Australia or any other part of the country, and insist on um, people sort of making some noise about it, about uh, preserving the habitat and then preserving the, the pitch plant as a result. Absolutely. We would really urge anyone, particularly in that Albany, the greater Albany and, and Walpole, Denmark region, to do just that. Um, there was a site that was uh, a very significant population of this species that was lost to development for housing at the beginning of this year even. So development is still continuing to have a significant impact on this species, um, despite the fact that it really represents sort of the jewel in the crown of our Western Australian floristic biodiversity. It really is quite a remarkable species. Well, I hope that uh, we've helped raise some awareness of this amazingly rare and unusual plant that is hanging on in uh, southwest Western Australia. Thanks for joining us on Lost in Science to talk about the plant, uh, Dr Adam Cross. Thank you very much. And anyone listening... Um, yeah, look into uh, trying to get some extra protection for this, uh, this unusual and rare plant. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. Now, Chris, did you know we have lions in Australia? Uh, I knew we used to have marsupial lions. Well, we did the, the used to have Kaleo. marsupial lions, I like lions, the didn't Kaleo. we? Yeah. Yeah. Megafauna. Yes. Yeah, but they don't exist anymore. We do have other sorts of lions. They are lions of the sea, otherwise Ooh. known as Australian sea lions. <laughs> I, that was You really confused me there. Yeah, I know. I know. Um, or if you want to be formal about it, Neophoca cinereal. Mm, mm, to their closest friends. Now, I had a wonderful experience with these creatures on the weekend on Kangaroo Island in South Australia, Australia's third largest island, just FYI for your next trivia night, Chris. What, what, so there's Tasmania, obviously. Yes, and Melville Island oh, is the second okay. largest. Yeah, and then coming in at number three, Kangaroo Island. Uh, now, in South Australia, the sea lions... Uh, live on Kangaroo Island and can be found more specifically in a place called Seal Bay, which is in fact 
a misnomer because they are not seals. They are, in fact, sea lions. But it is a bay. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is a bay, though. <laughs> that part is true. Okay. Yes. So seals and sea lions, let me explain a little bit how they are different. Unless you already know. No. All right. Okay. Well, seals, sea lions, together with walrus, belong to the family pinnipeds, which means fin-footed in Latin. Their fin foot, their fin feet, I should say, are quite different. So seals generally have a stubby front foot. It's thinly webbed and it's quite a lot smaller. And it's quite flipper-like. It is pretty much a flipper. Yeah. In comparison, sea lions have a mostly skin-covered, elongated foreflipper. Now, the second difference is that sea lions have small flaps for outer ears, whereas seals are more or less earless. 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 Are there any seals, proper seals, in Australia? Yeah, there's the Australian fur seal. Okay. Yeah. For Um, real? What's that? For real? For real fur seal, yeah. Yeah. Now, for seals, you need to get pretty close to see the tiny holes that are ears on the sides of their head. So they don't have any external protrusions like the sea lions or or sea lions, comparing. But, or us. Yeah. (laughs) Thirdly, sea lions are a lot noisier. Seals are quite quiet. And fourth, although they both live in and out of the water, seals are better adapted to live in the water than on land. They're normally smaller and they are more aerodynamic than sea lions. Um, Or hydrodynamic. Or hydrodynamic, of course. I should say aquadynamic. Aquadynamic? Yeah, yeah. Aqua, sorry. Aquadynamic. Now, back to their, their flippers. Their hind flippers actually of the sea lions can angle backwards. So seals angle backwards but don't rotate. Sea lions angle backwards but can also rotate. Forwards. Can rotate forwards. Yep, so they can both angle backwards and then come forwards. So seals pretty much are fast in the water but they have to crawl along on their belly when they're on the land. But that means sea lions, when they're on land, they can sort of like shimmy along on their front flippers and they're sort of on, on their hindquarters as well. So basically, if you see a pinniped, i.e. a sea lion, seal or walrus, walking around on land awkwardly or holding itself up with its flippers, um, which is something that the sea lions can do, you've got yourself a sea lion. If it's on its belly and its um, hind legs are angling backwards, you've got yourself a seal. Now, unfortunately, the lovely Australian sea lions are also an endangered species and they have a decreasing population. There are a lot of threats to sea lions, as there are a lot of threats to most marine mammals and reasons why their population is decreasing. But one of them specifically is gill nets. So these are nets that are used in large fisheries. So the nets that catch fish around their gills and keep them there for X amount of time. Now, these gill nets are a particular issue for the South Australian sea lion population. And in 2010, research was published and it showed that up to 374 Australian sea lions were killed in Australian waters surrounding Seal Bay in an 18th month period. Now, because the population is quite low anyway, there's only a few hundred sea lion 
uh, pups that are born every single year and reach adulthood. 374 sea lions getting whisked out of the population. That's a, that's kind of a big chunk, isn't it? That's a huge chunk. Yeah, yeah. It's it's too much for the sea lion population to withstand, so they're on a quite dangerous right. decline. Now, this number could actually be higher because there wasn't any um, there wasn't any law or anything for fisheries to report the sea lions that had died as a result of the gillnet. So it was just sort of like a self-reporting thing. So it could have actually been a lot higher. Now, once the research was published, then a whole lot of government, non-government agencies, as well as scientists and fishing industry worked together to ban the gillnets. And um, now every fishing boat that fishes anywhere near the sea lion colony in Seal Bay in Kangaroo Island has to have a camera on board to monitor exactly what is being caught. So they've banned all the nets and they're hopefully tracking what is being caught within the fisheries to hopefully give our wonderful sea lions, endemic sea lions, a fighting chance. Yes, you're listening to Lost in Science. Uh, My name is Chris and... Look, obviously, climate change is a big concern here in the Anthropocene. It is, yes. Should be a concern for everyone. But it's not our only concern. Okay. Um, we People talk about us being in the sixth mass extinction. And yep. we get to see like the climate change as being one of the big drivers of that. There is a lot of other stuff going on that is causing plants and animals around the world to go extinct. That's true. However, the first animal um, to become extinct because of climate change in Papua New Guinea has been described and reported recently. Look, I'm not playing down. I'm not saying climate change is not a thing, but there is a lot of other stuff going on. There is. There is. Around the world, the top two impacts on threatened species are, well, one of them is not a surprise, it's habitat loss. Yep. And change due to agriculture, that sort of thing. Yeah. Closely followed by what they call over-exploitation, which is things like hunting and timber harvesting. Yep. However, in trafficking. Australia... Sorry? Wildlife tra- yep. trafficking as well, yep. In Australia, um, the top factors that affect Australia's threatened species are, in fact, invasive species followed by changes in habitat. Now, this is at least due to um, studies done by the Threatened Species Recovery Hub, which is a national collaboration from 10 universities, along with the Australian Wildlife Conservancy. Uh, it's based out of the University of Queensland in Queensland. So they identified invasive species as the biggest threat to Australia's threatened species. 82% of all threatened species, that is 1,257 species, are under peril from invasive species. And 1,136, or 74% of threatened species, are affected by habitat loss and changes. So invasive species here is one of the big ones. That's huge. It is, yeah, it is huge. And it also looms large in people's minds. Look, it does loom large in people's minds, but I guess we get easily distracted by what the real threats are. Even with invasive species, that is one of the things. So if I had to ask you, Claire, what do you think are the top, is your top hated invasive species? Hated? What, like emotionally or, yeah, charged? Which, which, one, which one do you look, think is the problem? Look, I think, I think people think cane toads are probably more of a problem than... I think rabbits is probably the biggest one, right? Look, we're going to get to we're going to get the bunny rabbits. You're right, though. Um, okay, spoiler: they are the top one. They are the top one. But yeah, you're right. Cane toads is one of the big ones that is identified. There was actually though a poll I think in 2005 that listed hated species, and the the Indian minor or the common minor was the most hated in Australia, even though it doesn't really necessarily threaten many other native species. 
Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's just because it's, it's visibility. All, it's all about visibility and yeah. also annoying squawk. Stealing your chips. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but no, you're right. Um, the <laughs> rabbit. Not a seagull. <laughs> not. Um, the the rabbit. Um, by according to the the threatened species recovery hub, the um the rabbit is the top worst invasive species in Australia. There are 321 native species threatened by the rabbit. And the reason the rabbit is, comes up so high, apart from there being so many of them, is that it threatens both basically plants and animals. So it, it eats vegetation and then it you know, ruins it for all the other animals and plus it can also lead to increases in predator populations as well. So yeah, the rabbit is, does the most damage. But there's a bunch of other ones on the on the list as well. Uh, I'll go through the rest of the top ten, shall I? Please. Okay. Um, number two, actually, you probably wouldn't have got this one. It is, uh, and it shows you how all the things you need to consider. This one is actually the Phytophthora, probably not pronounced correctly, plant disease. So it's it's um right. It's a fungal. It's a disease. fungal thing. Well, it actually turns out it's a it's a water mold. Apparently, is the latest reclassification. But yeah, oh. it's known as root rot fungus. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Hurts. Um, I think it's something like two hundred native plants that are threatened by this particular right. mold. So yeah, it is up there. It is closely behind the rabbit. Next one. The pig. Right, the pig. Feral Wild pig. pig, feral pig. Um, most of these are going to be fairly familiar. Yeah, feral pig is, is, is number three. Feral number wow. four is the cat. I guess that. Yeah, okay, right. Which is not, probably not a surprise. I would have thought cat would have been number two, no. not number four. And is fox after that? Vulpus uh, vulpus? Fox is actually number five. Um, worse than the fox, quite a bit worse than the fox, is the goat. Really? And it shows, you know, yeah, like foxes are, again, it's visibility. Foxes are talked about a lot in the media. There's a lot of fear about foxes. You know, and they're predators. We think of predators. But yeah. but goats um, actually do more damage than, than the foxes really? do. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the fox is number five. Then we've got lantana, another plant. Um, blackberry. Yeah. You, know, you might like your blackberries to eat, but they're not great for the... Um, they're spiky. They're invasive. They're, they're noxious. Yeah. Followed by the rat and cattle. The rat, right? Oh, yeah. and then and then cattle, yeah, wild, feral cattle, wild cattle. Uh, number ten. Mm. So yeah, it's it's not the obvious ones. Your cane toads did not make the top ten, nor, nor did the um, the Indian miner. So it just shows the um, the the breadth of these things. Um, look, there are some other problematic things like um, native species can also be are also apparently threats to uh, one fifth of our threatened species, um, and things like um, grazing pressure from kangaroos and wallabies threatens one hundred and fifty two different plant. And animal species, macropods. Yeah, yeah, and macropod it's, grazing. Yeah, it's right. partly due to the control and exclusion of dingoes, as well as you know changes to pastures and this kind mm. of stuff. So yeah, it's uh, it shows you what. Um, with the extent of the problem and how we do need a, a broader approach. Uh, the fact that rabbits are still number one and with all the, the attempts to be made to control rabbits. Shows There's been a lot of biocontrol. Yeah, we still have a long way to go in controlling these species and then the new ones coming in all the time. But yeah, it's something that we need a national approach for and keep an eye out for those naughty pests. All right, that is it for another episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science is, of course, recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and it airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting 
Foundation. Uh, we would love you to get in touch with us. You can send us an email at lostinsci at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook. We are Lost in Science on 3CR. Or you can find us on Twitter. We are at Lost in Science 1. You can find us on your favorite podcast service. If you're able to give us a good rating and a review, please do so. That'll help other people to find us. Or you can find us um, on the radio. Why not? Same time next week when Claire, Stu and Chris will get Lost, Lost in Science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.